My name is Mike Berry, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It's my privilege to bring the word this morning, this communion Sunday. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There is an insert in your bulletin where you can take some notes and do fill-ins. Our text says, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and leads us, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death, to the other, an aroma of life to life, and who is sufficient for these things? Let's bow in prayer. Who indeed, Lord, is sufficient for the things that we see in your word? We thank you that our sufficiency is from you, Father, who give us your spirit and have made us at this church ministers of the new covenant. We thank you, Lord, for always leading each of us as your captives, as your prisoners of war, as it were, in your triumphal procession. And through us, you have chosen to spread the aroma of the knowledge of yourself in every place. We pray that in this place that the gospel would be spread, knowing that there are those many here who are being saved by yourself. At the same time, we Acknowledge that there are no doubt some here who are perishing. We pray, Father, that as the aroma goes out this morning through your preached word, Lord, we pray that there would be many that would be saved and that this would be life unto life. And yet we trust you, this all-sufficient one, that you are the one that will determine death to death and life to life. We leave these things in your hands. In Christ's name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. I want to begin this message by referring to a 2014 story on abcnews.com called Six Cents, Cents, that have the power to heal by Tori Rodriguez, wherein she uh, notes that the essential oils industry has become a $1.2 billion business. Raise your hand if you've ever used an essential oil. Okay, pretty much all of us. Um, Research, according to the article, proves that when inhaled properly, uh, they're good medicine, says Dr. Brent Bauer, director of complementary and integrative medicine at Mayo Clinic, the Mayo Clinic. Um, Dozens of studies have found that essential oils can both protect your long-term health and relieve symptoms in common maladies, They can help lower stress levels, relieve pain, improve mood, quell cravings and nausea. And essential oils have even been demonstrated to kill the flu, E. coli, and cancer cells. Um, The findings, according to the article, are promising. Imagine swapping pills for scents. Uh, But they come with a caveat 
A caveat according to Dr. Bauer of the Mayo Clinic, quote, whatever is powerful enough to exert a benefit, a beneficial effect in the body is also powerful enough to exert a negative effect. He goes on and says essential oils release volatile organic compounds, VOCs, or other words, off gases that are often linked to paints and pesticides. So while, for instance, moderate exposure to essential oils can be heart healthy, prolonged exposure can pose cardiac risks. So how do you determine the benefits from the risks? Well, they give you a list of things to do. The key is staying within a 15 to 60 minute sweet spot. Never breathe in essential oils for more than one hour at a time. I think I've failed at that. Also, follow the instructions on the bottle. And if you are taking any medications or suffer from chronic health condition, ask your doctor before you start practicing uh, aromatherapy. Since they're not FDA regulated, the essential oils on your store shelves may not be the real thing. They, uh, they finally say in the article, just as with any other medicine, essential oils must be used correctly. Let's pray. <laughs> Have I sufficiently created a division amongst us this morning? I found that essential oils do create divisive conversations, especially at Christmas and Thanksgiving parties with your family. Um, regardless of your use or non-use of essential oils, I want to draw your attention this morning to another fragrance which you can breathe continuously without worry of overexposure. And yet it also has life-giving and death-insuring properties. Uh, it can and often is fabricated. And so we must get it right. And as we will see this morning, it is not only for your enjoyment, uh, though that is uh, an essential benefit, but it is uh, essentially or primarily for the enjoyment of its creator. And of course, I'm talking about the fragrance of Christ through his gospel, as we see in this text here in Second Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the fragrance that God enjoys. We're going to be talking about the fragrance of the gospel. And as we do so, let me just remind us of some things that we said last time. Oh, that's not showing up very well. Uh, we may have to skip that part. Nah, it's supposed to be a white background. Are you guys seeing a white background? No. Okay, we'll skip over there. Okay, that's okay. Um Basically, just by way of review, we want to uh, talk about what we talked about last week, and that is the verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Last week, um, we answered basically the question, who is doing the spreading? The answer is God is the one that is diffusing and doing the spreading of this fragrance through whom it's through us, Paul says, according to verse 14, it's through the apostles and his ministry team. 
And the content of this aroma is, at the end of the verse, the knowledge of him. It's the knowledge of God or the knowledge of God and Christ. And where is this aroma being spread at the very end of our verse? Everywhere or in every place. And last week we talked about how that this is a triumphal procession. And the actual term that Paul uses is very, very precise. It's speaking or it's developing this image of really Christ coming in as the victor and us being the captives in his wake. And as we come in as captives, we, with Paul, give thanks to God for Christ, the one who has captivated us, who has captured us and brought us into his, his wake, as it were. In the verses that we're going to be talking about this morning, there's a little bit of a shift in the idea. Now Paul is going to picture us as not so much uh, the prisoners of war as the actual fragrance of Christ and his sacrifice. Uh, when I was an English teacher, we called this a mixed metaphor, which you don't do, right? In English, when I'm teaching students to write, I tell them not to use mixed metaphors. But when it comes to the Bible and rap music, mixed metaphors are perfectly acceptable. In fact, they're essential. If anybody, I'm not sure if there's any people that listen to Christian rap here. I have outed myself many times. But um, yeah, you have to have mixed metaphors to get the point across in the genre of rap music. And Paul uses mixed metaphors everywhere. And so it's okay to violate this particular principle of the English language and English literature. And we're going to see that uh, this morning. As really, we take uh, three breaths. I don't have for you. You have it in your... um, in your handout here, I don't have it for you behind me in my PowerPoint, but the main point that we're going to make this morning is regardless of the human response to the gospel, its proclaimers delight God's heart. And we're going to add this as we move through because they are in Christ, but also because their proclamation centers on the son whom he loves. So our main point is going to be there. Are, there is a human response to this fragrance called the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. But the proclaimers still delight the heart of God because their position in Christ, but also because their preaching centers on Christ. And so therefore he delights in this fragrance. In verse 15 and 16, we're going to be answering questions like, how is the aroma of the gospel being spread? For whose primary pleasure and delight is the gospel being spread? To what effect is the gospel being preached and spread? And with what power and sufficiency? Basically, to stick with our analogy, we're going to take three gospel breaths this morning. Three gospel breaths. So let's all breathe. Not in a Buddhist sense, but in a Christian sense. We're going to take a breath in. And here's our first point. God's ministers are the delightful fragrance of Christ to God himself. God's ministers are the delightful fragrance of Christ to God himself. That's what our text says there in verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. Uh, notice that we have the, uh, the conjunction for which answers the question, how is it that the aroma of the gospel is going to be diffused through the apostles? 
Um, and the we is Paul primarily in our context. Paul's talking about himself. And in context, Timothy, Silvanus, and Titus is the closest referent of his apostolic team. And so we, and that is the apostle and the team of ministers, are present tense. We are. This is who we are. We are what? The pleasing aroma of Christ. Let's talk about pleasing aroma just for a moment. The idea here is sweet savor of sacrifice. Uh, pleasing aroma. There's, if you look at your translation, some of your translations are going to say fragrant. Some of them are going to say savor. Some of them are going to say aroma. Some of them might say um, odor. Um, the idea is there's clearly a referent here to sacrifice. A sweet savor of sacrifice or a pleasing aroma captures the idea beautifully. Um, by the way, this is the same word um, that is the name of a Christian woman in Philippians 4.2, Yodia. Remember Yodia and Syntyche are having a little conflict there, and Paul references them in Philippians 4 for all Christians to read about their conflict for the rest of church history. Um, <clears throat> well, her name is pleasing aroma or sweet savor. And we also see the same word used in Philippians 4.18 where um, Paul is, is thankful for the gift that is coming uh, from the Philippians to himself. He calls it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So right there you see fragrant aroma and, and, and sacrifice are put together. And then in Ephesians 5.2, the same words being used where Paul says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us for an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. That's our word. So sacrifice uh, and, and this word are, are repeatedly connected uh, by Paul. So this is a, a sacrificial aroma of whom? Christ. So Paul and his uh, ministry team are present tense the aroma of Christ's sacrifice, a pleasing aroma of Christ's sacrifice to a particular object, and that object is God. God is, in Paul's text here, the primary one who is breathing in this sweet savor aroma. Again, look at our text, verse 15, the first part of it. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. So the picture here is the apostles. And again, this is somewhat of a mixed metaphor. We've got the, the triumphal procession, right, of Christ coming in as the victor. And we have the captives. And there definitely is incense being burned. And there's flowers being thrown. And there would have been sacrifices made during this triumphal procession. But now Paul is picturing himself and his compatriots as not no longer the prisoners, but now the actual aroma or the smoke or the smell. One commentator puts it this way. The apostles are the smoke that arises from the sacrifice of Christ to God, diffusing as it ascends the knowledge of God that is communicated in the cross. That's a great way to say it. Uh, this commentator, Barrett, also says the preaching of the gospel is part of the gospel itself. He would say that where Paul's mission advances, the smoke of Christ's sacrifice ascends, it reaches, 
and is well-pleasing to God himself. So let's, let's draw some conclusions from just this, this part of our text. Um, we know that Paul is speaking of himself and his ministry team, and, um, and, and they are, Paul's describing himself as the very aroma of Christ's sacrifice that is breathed in by God and God delights in himself. And so in this mixed metaphor, God is both the diffuser of the fragrance and the primary beneficiary of its aroma. He's the one that's sending it out and he's the one that's breathing it in. And notice that the aroma is Christ. And so, and, and, and God, the father is delighted and well pleased with Christ, right? Um, when the father breathes in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, he breathes in and says, I'm well pleased. When the father looks at his son at the baptism, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Everything the son does pleases the father. Jesus says, I always do what pleases the father. I always do the works that please the father. And so this cannot but please the father because it's coming from Christ. But notice that Paul doesn't just say that this is the aroma of Christ. He says, we are the aroma of Christ. Paul speaks of that about himself first and the ministers that are with him secondarily, but by way of application, would this not include all believers? Because we know that we are inside of this person who is called the beloved one, right? Christ is beloved. We are in Christ. Therefore, according to Christian doctrine and Christian teaching that we see in the New Testament, particularly Paul's teaching, we are in Christ. Theologians call this the complacency of the father with us by virtue of his son. That because the father is infinitely pleased in the son and because we've been placed inside of the son, the father is by virtue of our position in the son, well pleased with us. That's why Paul can say we are the well-pleasing. We are this delightful aroma to God, us who are in Christ. How can that impact you this morning? How can that impact me and outlook, the outlook on ourselves and the outlook on our ministry. Well, if you are in Christ, um, you are always well pleasing to your father on your best day and on your worst day. We've seen that we've read about that in the gospel primer. We talk about that concept frequently, but we can, this is something that you can breathe in every day and you don't have to worry about a 15 to 60 minute time frame, right? Unless you get a VOC, right? You can continually breathe in this fragrance that as you are in Christ, you are a well-pleasing fragrance, not because of yourself, but because of the son. That's a center point of the gospel. And that is what gives us power to live out the Christian life. And so we need to breathe that in on a continual basis Breathe it in when you're feeling good about yourself and you're starting to well up with pride. Breathe it in when you're feeling bad about yourself and wondering whether the Lord is still pleased with you today. I'll just be very honest with you. And I think I would represent any of our elders and pastors that come to preach here at Cornerstone is 
is we have to breathe in the gospel for ourselves as we get up here to preach to you because we know that we are not sufficient for these things. That's going to be our third breath here in a moment. It's only through Christ that we have any standing whatsoever to get up and preach the gospel to you. And so we have to walk in that position, walk in our position to understand uh, where we stand and to have the power to go out and do what God is calling us to do. But let's let's take a second breath. Let's go ahead and breathe. Breathe this in, breathe out. All right, that's our gospel breathing. The fragrance of God's ministers affects people differently. All right, so we are the aroma of Christ. It's just a fact. But the fact produces the fact of the gospel as it's diffused produces different results. Look at the rest of verse 15 and on into 16. For we are to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among in the environment of those who are being saved and those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. So the fragrance of God's ministers affect people differently. Paul basically puts the whole human race into two different categories. So the apostles are the smoke that rises up from the sacrifice of Christ. It's being diffused all around this triumphal procession, but also just around the world as as Paul and his ministers are spreading the gospel. And it's. While its its primary its primary object is the Father of uh, God the Father, it is also uh, being diffused in the environment of others among those who are being saved. Present tense: those who are on the path of being saved. Passive voice: any English teachers in here? Raise your hand if you've taught any English. All right. Okay. Great. So we've got present tense. Passive voice means it's something that's happening to them. A passive voice is the idea I can hit the ball, right? That's active. Or I can be hit by the ball. That's passive, right? So the passive voice is something that happens unto you. So Paul is saying that this aroma of Christ's sacrifice is being spread through the apostles. And part of the environment, some of the breathers are those that are ongoingly in a present tense sense being passively saved by the gospel itself, by God himself. So they are being influenced by the gospel in a present tense, passive voice sense. And the other people who are breathing in this gospel are those that are perishing. They are also present tense, continuously perishing as the gospel is affecting them. So there's two different categories of people. And then verse 16 to the one, there's an aroma. They breathe it in and it produces death unto death. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. That doesn't sound good, right? Death unto death. That sounds like people have gone over 60 minutes of their uh, aromatherapy. And they're breathing in those VOCs. Uh, to the other is life unto life. All right. So there's two different effects. Let me kind of do a little bit of a footnote here on some other passages. So we get this, this idea that Paul's talking about this, 
this perishing and this life-giving thing is not unique to this passage. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul, had, in, his, in, his, uh, in his first letter to the, to the church at Corinth, he says in chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are what? perishing. That's the same word. But to those who are being saved, again, present, vo- present tense, passive voice, it is the power of God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That gives us a little clue. We're going to be talking about belief here in a second. Verse 23, for we preach Christ crucified. So Christ crucified being preached has this effect on two divisions of people. So let's talk about this death unto death, this life unto life, these two different divisions in what sense can the gospel possibly, this good thing, right? This aroma of Christ. How in the world can the aroma of Christ, his death on the cross, produce death in some and life in others? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. And um, I just want to just confess to you that I am just robbing C.H. Spurgeon in this part of this message blind. All right. So. If you want to hear a better exposition of what I'm about ready to say, just go listen to C.H. Spurgeon and you'll get it. So you can just fall asleep now for the next five minutes and just go listen to him. No. So here are some ways in which we could explain death unto death and life unto life. Well, first of all, there is a preaching of death um, that is totally apart from the gospel itself. You know, if if somebody is out preaching, if we're out sharing what we think is truth, but it's not really the gospel that will produce its own kind of death. In fact, Paul talks about that later in our context. If you look down at Second Corinthians three, six, um, he says, uh, who has made us sufficient as who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter get, kills, but the spirit gives life. So here he's contrasting a preaching of the old covenant that now is expired because Christ has come in, in response or comparison to the preaching of the new covenant. And so clearly part of what Paul is implying is that if someone were to take the old covenant that now is expired and to begin to preach that as a means of salvation, that would cause death, right? Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but when I go to the grocery store, um, periodically I'll go pick up milk. Katie says, go get milk. And I say, where? And she says, Winco. And I say, where's that? I've been living in Marina Valley for over 20 years, and I used to have to get directions to Winco. So I go to Winco, and when I go to get the milk, I don't, I've been taught by my wife, I don't take the one that's presented to me first, right? I kind of look to the back for the one that has the longer, right, expiration date. Um, once that milk gets expired or your sourdough bread gets expired, you really don't want to eat that or drink that stuff anymore. Right. And it's not that the milk is a bad thing, but it served a purpose for a time. And part of what Paul is telling us is the old covenant is good. It came from a good God and it serves a purpose for a time. But if you try to put new covenant people back underneath the old covenant, it causes death. Right. 
And so we don't want to preach old covenant truths as if they're for new covenant people. That causes death. It's one of the problems that we have with our seven-day Adventist people. They want to bring people back underneath these old covenant rules, and they're kind of picking and choosing what they want, and they're not giving us the, the, the Christ and the new covenant. Christ is in the old covenant, by the way, too. We'll talk about that another time. And, and they're trying to put people underneath death teaching, stuff that causes death unto people. And so, so we got to get the gospel right. Um, and by the way, even as good new covenant preachers and pastors, if we're not careful, we can preach a kind of gospel that can lead to death in God's people. At least it can cause um, some unhealthy behaviors and unhealthy and unhealthy churches as we go out and we begin to preach a salvation by holiness gospel, um, a salvation by law keeping gospel. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which we can kind of shortchange the finished work of Christ and the fact that we are beloved in Christ and make people feel the weight of the law for salvation. We have to be very, very, very careful of that. Um, I think it's uh, Chalmers who said that in, early in his ministry, he would preach holiness over and over and over again, and he never saw a drunkard give up his drink until he began to preach the unconditional love of Christ. Once people began to get the gospel in the love of Christ, drunkards were putting away their drink. Adulterers were moving away from their adultery. Change was happening from the expulsive power of a new affection, not merely by upholding the law of holiness. Now, this is tricky, brothers and sisters, because on the other hand, let's talk about this, that the gospel can be death unto death for those that turn the grace of God into licentiousness. There is a type of gospel response where we can preach the true gospel of grace. And yet people can take the gospel of free grace through Christ and turn it into licentiousness. Spurgeon speaks about those in his own congregation that would hold on to the doctrines of grace and proclaim themselves as elect and yet go to the bars and, and drop their beer down their throats and sing blasphemous songs because they were so convinced that they were elect that nothing could happen to them, though they wallow in the streets in their drunkenness. To which Spurgeon responded, that is not what the power of the gospel does unto God's people. The power of the gospel that is received by free grace has a product and it produces people that love their God and hate their sin and repent of it and have the power to repent of it because of the power of the love of Christ. And so we need to be careful about turning the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a way that gospel preaching can actually we can preach the, the true death, burial and resurrection of Christ. And yet. If people hear it wrongly or if the spirit's not operative, they can take the grace of God and turn it as an excuse for sin. Another way that the gospel can be death unto death is just by the biblical principle that greater judgment comes to those with greater light. Right. Greater judgment. 
This is the condemnation of the world that light came into the world, but people what love darkness rather than light. Uh, Jesus is the one that says over Matthew 11 that uh, woe to <clears throat> woe to you for if the works that had been done in it to, before you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Uh, but your their judgment will be more tolerable than your judgment is what he says. This idea of tolerable seems to indicate that there's levels of judgment and that people that hear the gospel and, and don't respond to it, don't respond to the light with faith can actually incur greater death and judgment upon themselves. So, for instance, someone that only has the light of general revelation out in some part of the world and they persist in sin, um, what kind of judgment would come to us? who are sitting underneath the preaching of the true gospel week in and week out if we don't respond in faith? What kind of judgment would come to the elders or pastors of this local church if we corrupt the gospel in our own lives, and our own faith? That's why James would say, let not many of you become teachers for we shall receive what? A stricter judgment. Why would I be more strictly judged? It's because I'm a preacher of the gospel. I have more opportunity to interface with the gospel uh, than than most in the congregation. And so I my my judgment is 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 higher because of that. And if it were not for Christ to come in and open up our eyes and help us to believe, we could incur greater judgment. And then there's those that would just simply mock God or his people or his ministers Think of the type of judgment that comes upon people that persecute the people of God. Second Thessalonians chapter one. Read that sometime of of Christ coming in flaming fire and vengeance, taking in uh, taking vengeance upon his enemies and those who do not obey the gospel. I want to quote C. H. Spurgeon at length here when he says this in his sermon on the two effects of the gospel. He says, quote, when his enemies, Christ's enemies come before him. Shall he take them by the hand and say, the other day you did call my servant a dog and spit on him. And for this, I will give you heaven. Rather, if the sin has not been canceled by the blood of Christ, will he not say, depart, cursed one, into the hell which you did scoff at? Leave that heaven which you did despise and learn that through you, Though you said that there is no God, this right arm shall teach you eternally the lesson that there is one. For he who discovers it not by the works of benevolence shall learn it by the deeds of vengeance. Therefore, depart again, I say. It shall increase men's hell that they have opposed God's truth. Now, uh, uh, is not this a very solemn view of the gospel? That is indeed to many a savor of death unto death. Think of the people that you've shared the gospel with that begin to mock God's children. Their wrath is being stored up for the day of wrath. And we must pity them and pray for them that they would repent and come to a very merciful Savior. Uh, But let's now turn. These are just some ways, and you could think of more ways in which the fragrance of the gospel could actually produce death. This good fragrance could actually produce death in people. And let me just make a little side note here that as you are preaching the gospel, it should not be shocking to us that as we preach the gospel, there will be that kind of response. 
as Paul in Acts 17, when he's preaching on Mars Hill, there were some that mocked. When Hezekiah sent out his runners to preach the gospel, there were many who mocked and laughed at the runners. But there will be those who respond. And that is the gospel for the vast majority, I believe, of people that do come underneath the preaching of the gospel and are willing simply to cry out and humble themselves. It doesn't take much. It's just simple faith and belief. It is a savor of life until the unto life, our text says. Think of the day that you believed. Think of yourself. The fact that you at one point you were in darkness, that you were heading towards hell. I was one of those who used to make fun of my Sunday school teacher. I used to mock at the gospel. I used to make fun of Christians. I can remember sitting in our home uh, with our family, making fun of another family that we were related to because of how narrow their family lived and because of their belief systems. And I remember laughing at them. And yet there was a day in which I heard the gospel and suddenly the things I used to laugh at and mock and be blind to, I suddenly believed and loved. Why did that happen? Why did I hear Chuck Smith preach the gospel on KCOP channel 13 and and I go into my room and I cry out to Jesus and now I'm believing the gospel. Now suddenly I open my Bible and it's light to me rather than darkness. Why is that? And, and, and many of us, most of us in this room can attest to this life unto life experience as the gospel comes in. We breathe it in and it's a life unto life as it's operated by faith through the Holy Spirit. But let's also point out this. This is life unto life. Jesus came to give eternal life. This is not life unto death. The gospel, as it's believed upon, as it's breathed, is a life unto eternal life. There is a form of the gospel out there that is preached, and it's been preached for many, many years, several hundred years, that basically says a person can believe the gospel. They can actually be justified. They can be counted born again. They can be placed into Christ and then be damned in the end that they can somehow lose their status of justification, lose their status of being placed in Christ, and that in the end, the devil will win. I want to propose to you, this is not what our text says, and this is not what the Bible teaches about eternal life. Um, Again, let me quote one of my favorite guys here, C.H. Spurgeon. As for me, I so deeply believe in the immutable love of Jesus, he says, that I suppose that if one believer were to be in hell, Christ himself would not stay long in heaven, but would soon cry out to the rescue, to the rescue. That Jesus could not bear to have one of his children whom he had ordained from before the foundation of the world, Christ slain before the foundation of the world. He, he would go down into hell and rescue them if they were captivated by the devil. Spurgeon goes on to paint this picture. Imagine that the devil were to gain one of the jewels of Christ's crown and hold it up at once and say to Jesus, Aha, I got one of yours. You died for this one. You did love him once, but I got him in the end. 
Will that ever happen to people who cannot be plucked out of the Father's hands? Will that ever happen to children who cannot be plucked out of the hands of Christ? Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. And so we need to remember, this is a fragrance of life unto life, not a fragrance of life unto death. And so, believer in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've truly believed in him, if your heart waxes warm with love for Christ, then stand secure that you are in the double grip of the Father and the Son. You have not believed and have life unto death. You have life unto life because ultimately your salvation is secured not in your own perseverance, but in the fact that you've been placed in the beloved one who is well-pleasing to the father. The father can never be displeased with the son. And if you're in the son, he can never be displeased with you. And by the way, as we talked about several months ago, Jesus Christ, by the way, has prayed for you. He's prayed for your endurance and he wants to put you on display to the whole world. So it's a life unto life. So just consider how this this can affect this would affect Paul's thinking as as the fragrance of God's ministers affects people differently as Paul is a POW being brought around by God's sovereignty all around Asia and around Corinth, Macedonia. He's preaching the gospel, he's in Troas. Some people are mocking, some people are being saved. And yet he just leaves the results to God. He leaves the results to his God. There's going to be different responses. There's different. uh, There's two divisions of humanity. We are not responsible for the results. Yes, we're responsible to seek Christ for ourselves. Yes, in the sanctification sense, we are responsible for our holiness and to adorn the gospel with good works. But we're not responsible for the outcome that is on him. And so that should give uh, that would give Paul a peace. It should give every pastor and minister peace, and it should give you peace as you are praying and sharing the gospel with family and friends, um, that as you are sharing the gospel and as your life is a fragrance, it is going to be a fragrance of life to some and death to others. There's no guarantee. There's nowhere in the Bible that guarantees that every mom and dad here, that all of your children are come to know Christ. There's no guarantee that every person in your family is going to come to know Christ. There's no guarantee that everybody at your work is going to come to know Christ. Uh, we are, it's, we don't have the Midas touch. Let's put it that way. Uh, even though you are a child of, of, of the living God, God is not guaranteed that every single Christian, that every person you touch is suddenly going to get born again. No, there's two responses to the fragrance of the gospel. Some are going to believe unto life, and some are going to be hardened unto damnation. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. And so we need to be, we need to stand back and rest in that and allow the Lord to do what he's going to do. Yes, pray. Yes, preach. Yes, live a holy life. But leave the results ultimately 
in the hands of our very capable Savior. Does this make sense? I don't know about you, but it, I mean, as a minister of the gospel, as a father, um, as somebody who wants to see people in my community come to know Christ, there's there's a burden. And I think there's a sense in which we should all feel that burden, right? We want people to know Christ. And yet at the end of the day, it doesn't depend upon you, right? You blow out the gospel. You breathe out the gospel. You preach the gospel. And then we just let the Lord do his thing in his timing. Many of you have children or parents who have yet to believe. And who's to say that they won't believe at some point? Don't give up hope and praying. Don't give up hope and preaching. But at the end of the day, God will breathe in and be satisfied with the aroma of Christ, though it produces death in some and life in others. Christ will still please the Father. Amen? Let's take a third breath. God's ministers are not sufficient for this task. Yeah, let's do that. You guys remind me? Breathe out. Third breath, God's ministers are not sufficient for this task in and of themselves. Look at the final part of our text. And who is sufficient for these things? It's the question that Paul asks. Who's adequate? Some of your translations say. Who is equal to the task? The NIV says. The implied answer is no one. None of us are sufficient for this task. Yes, Paul's detractors may have thought they were sufficient for the task. We won't spend time looking at verse 17, but there seems to be an implied answer from Paul's detractors where they would say, yes, I'm sufficient for the task. But Paul, the the implied answer is, we are not sufficient for this task. Just think about the fact that as Paul and his ministry team as they would go out and preach the gospel, that there's this horrifying truth that by preaching the gospel, he leads some to life and at the same time sentences others to death. That is really a scary thought that as I am preaching right now, let's just bring it down to brass tacks. As I am preaching the gospel right now and it is being diffused in this room, I'm preaching, hopefully, the fragrance of Christ. In some people in this room, you are breathing it in and you smell life because you're already being saved. You've placed your faith in Christ. You breathe it in and you're like, yes. But there are some of you in this room that breathe it in and you smell a corpse. You smell the day of your judgment. Some of you smell nothing because you have not been awakened yet. That is a horrifying truth that should make us feel the weight of what we do as pastors and preachers of the gospel, that we are not sufficient for these things. Paul's opponents would have said, here I am, send me. We should say first, woe is me, before we say, here I am, send me. We need to feel the weight We need to feel the awesomeness of this task before us. Who is sufficient for these things? 
Well, Paul does answer that question later in our context. If you look over at chapter 3, verse 4, who is sufficient for these things? He says in verse 4, we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from where? From God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills. Where does our sufficiency come from? It comes from God. God is the one that put Paul in ministry as an apostle. Paul's the one that put Salvanius, Timothy, Titus in the ministry. When we read the Bible, we see that we have the apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers that have been gifted by Christ to the church. There is a role that apostles have. There is a role that pastors and teachers have and evangelists. And there's a role that all of us have. Every one of us, in some sense, teaches um, the gospel, right? Every one of us is called to evangelize and make disciples. And at the same time, God has given pastors and teachers to this local body to do work on behalf of this local body to help equip you to do the work of the ministry. And we must all realize that our sufficiency, we are not sufficient for these things, that our sufficiency is from the Lord himself. He makes us sufficient. In fact, just our, our immediate context reminds us of where our sufficiency comes from, because we are the aroma of who? Christ. We're the aroma of Christ. And so it's Christ and his sacrifice that really makes us sufficient for the things that we're talking about this morning. Let me just speak for a moment just as one of the pastors. And really, I'm, I'm only up here once every two or three months, perhaps. Pastor Milton is up here every week and just doing two sermons right in a row. I'm wondering this week, man, how does he do this every single week? Um, but just to put yourself in our shoes or particularly Pastor Milton's shoes, ask the question, who is sufficient for these things? Well, none of us are. Our sufficiency comes from Christ. But if I could just bear the heart of one pastor for a moment, there's many temptations that come with being a minister of the gospel. I could stand up here and I'm, I'm preparing to preach the text and my heart can say to me, Oh, don't say that because in saying this, you'll be accusing yourself. And I can leave that out of the preaching or I can be preparing to preach. And suddenly it occurs to me if I say such and such, I know that such and such person may not believe this doctrine. And so perhaps there's a temptation to leave that out. Or there's the temptation also as as a minister of the gospel, as you're in public, you're saying, you know, many, many words in a public forum and people hear things differently and you get encouragements from one and then you get criticisms from other and there can be temptations to not hear criticisms in a humble way. There can be the temptation to overly hear your critics and to be all constantly running after the jackals rather than going after the sheep. And so there's so many things that can rise up, not to mention the hampering of our own flesh, the devil All that to be said, brothers and sisters, we need your prayers for us. Paul says in the beginning of this book, he talks about how that they were hitting things in Asia that were above their strength. 
Verse 9, uh, this is chapter 1, verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Verse 10, who delivers us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust. But verse 11, he says, you also helping together in prayer for us. Paul's acknowledging that he is not sufficient, but God is a sufficiency. And one of the ways that God mediates his sufficiency to pastors is through the prayers of the saints. And so as pastors, we need your prayers constantly. So thankful for a brother that comes in every week and prays for Pastor Milton or me or Carlos, whoever's preaching, comes every week and prays for us in our office. I know that our care groups pray for us. My care group prayed for me this week, prayed for me last week. You pray for us. We have people that meet early and pray for the church. And I no no doubt pray for our pastors. Don't cease, brothers and sisters, to pray for us as your ministers. Uh, Our position, we're just one of the gifts in the body. Um, Our gift is not to be exalted above the other gifts of the body, as we see in Romans 12 and elsewhere. At the same time, it is an important gift because we're responsible to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And if God can take out as ministers, if he can take out pastors, he can do great harm to the sheep. And so we are in constant need of your prayers and we appreciate your prayers, brothers and sisters. So those are three breaths. God's ministers are the delightful fragrance of Christ to God himself. The fragrance of God's ministers Uh, affect people differently. And then God's ministers are not sufficient for this task in and of themselves. Uh, God is, he is all of, he is all of our sufficiency. Let's, uh, let's talk about some takeaways here. Some takeaways of these three gospel breaths. First of all, let's just remember that God is the diffuser, not you. It's on God, right? Anybody heard the new, uh, Should I say it? The new Kanye West album? It's on God. I don't know what to say. I I like it. I really do. I like the album. I like the guy I'm praying. I I love where he's in the song. Hold on. We sing. Pray for me. Pray for me. That's a very good, humble song to ask for prayer. But it's on God. I guess it's kind of a hip hop phrase for basically it's on him. Right. It's on him. And so God is the diffuser. We're not. We do the best we can, and then we just leave it in his hands. He's the diffuser. And by the way, God is the one, another takeaway, who enjoys the fragrance. The fragrance is primary. The sacrifice of Christ, God is the primary object of the sacrifice of Christ. His death appeased the wrath of God, and it is well-pleasing to the Father. So he's the object. Even if, theoretically, I mean, think about being a gospel preacher if you were Jeremiah in Jeremiah's day, right? One of the texts that God used in my life to help me feel a subjective call to the ministry was Jeremiah chapter 1, where basically God tells Jeremiah, you're going to go out and preach the gospel. Nobody's going to listen, and you're going to die with no converts, right? Um, But Jeremiah went out and preached and did what God called him to do at that time, and it was a success. It was a success, even though every time you thought somebody might listen, Jeremiah is rejected. God is the one who enjoys the fragrance. He's the primary object. Another takeaway, Christ is the centerpiece of the father's 
pleasure. It centers on Christ. He is the sacrifice. He is the content of the aroma. He is the father's pleasures. And so we need to make sure that our mind, what we're breathing in is Christ. What we're breathing out is Christ. What we're preaching is Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's be very careful that we're not just preaching a gospel of holiness unto salvation, of this unto salvation, of law keeping unto salvation. We need to preach Christ crucified unto salvation. That's the power of God unto salvation. And if you hear other things coming from this pulpit, tell us. If we're not preaching Christ, if you show up on one Sunday, two Sundays, three Sundays, and you're not hearing about Christ, find another church. I think I can say that, right? <laughs> find another church. If you're not hearing about Christ, get out of here. Go somewhere else. Christ is the centerpiece of the Father's pleasure. And because of that, God takes pleasure in His children because He is pleased with His Son. He takes pleasure in you. He takes pleasure in these pastors, the elders of this church, because he is pleased with his son. Right. Our main point this morning was regardless of the human response to the gospel, its proclaimers delight God's heart because their proclamation centers on the son whom he loves. But let me just add something into there. Oh, it's not going to come up for you. I'll read it. Um, the. Regardless of the human response to the gospel, it's the proclaim uh, its proclaimers delight God's heart because they are in the son whom he loves. Everybody who proclaims the gospel rightly, who is truly born again, they are in the son whom the Lord loves. And therefore, that's really the point, regardless of the human response, to the gospel, you are in the son and then we proclaim the son. And so therefore, yes, we know the fields are white with harvest and God's going to cause the increase, but we can go away uh, and put our our heads on our pillow at night saying, I'm in the sun. Christ is preached. You are not sufficient for these things. There's nobody in this room who has sufficiency in and of themselves, but our sufficiency is in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with saying, woe is me. Nothing wrong with that. That's a part of of what we're breathing in. Woe is me. But because we're in Christ, we can say, here I am. Send me. Right here. I am. Send me. Because we are in Christ. Neither are your pastors sufficient for these things. And so we constantly need your prayers. We need your encouragements. We also need your accountability. The the Bereans look, search the scriptures to see whether the things that Paul was teaching were indeed scriptural. And so we need your constant accountability and prayers. And then finally, the gospel cuts two ways, brothers and sisters. Two ways that the gospel cuts. And we would be remiss if we thought that everybody in this auditorium are on one side of the equation. That's almost never the case. Jesus Christ said that he came to bring a sword. He will divide mother from father, son from parents, 
children from their parents, parents from their children. And whenever the fragrance of the sacrifice of Christ goes out through its ministers and through its people, it's always going to cut. There is one scent that has the power to heal and save. And that is the message of Christ and him crucified. One scent. You do not need to limit the intake of the true gospel this morning. You can. That's one thing that you can continuously take in is the gospel. You can trust completely in the true gospel. You can breathe it in continuously with faith and hope. And you can cast these breads upon the water, this bread upon the waters. It will not be lost. It will not bring you ill if you simply believe. That's the thing. It just seems so counterintuitive. We always feel in our heart of hearts, even as Christians, we're closet Catholics. What do I need to do? Just tell me what to do. Jesus says, these are the works, right? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A bunch of us were out at UCR preaching the gospel UC, uh, uh, Thursday. We had people out here sharing testimonies, preaching the gospel, passing out tracts. You guys were such a beautiful fragrance out here giving hot dogs and so on. Just awesome games. But it's very, very simple. As the fragrance goes out, it's not difficult at all. It's believed that Jesus Christ died for sinners. He was raised from the dead. He lived the perfect life that you could never live. So if you would simply believe in him, you can be saved. Jesus came. He says, all you who are wearied and heavy laden, Come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel, the fragrance of Christ, that it is very, very simple. We just lay our luggage down and we come to you and you are the one that saves. You are the one that puts us in Christ. You justify, you sanctify You who began this work will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. We thank you, our Lord, for the opportunity that we are not equal to the task of being a fragrance of life to some and death to others. But you are equal to the task. And we pray, Father, that this church, that Cornerstone, would continue to be a a sweet-smelling savor uh, in our community. We thank you for our position in Christ by virtue of our faith. We pray, Father, that you would use the preaching from this pulpit, the preaching from its people uh, to go out and be that fragrance. We trust in you, Lord, that you will do your work in this our day. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would apply these things. You are the advocate. You are the teacher. You are the comforter. And so we pray that you would take your preached word and use it for your glory. That it would be a sweet smelling savor. To you through Christ, we pray this in his name, all God's people said, amen.